This podcast was made possible by the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in collaboration with Fusion Films. Doing Our Work, Session 7, Colorblind Racism. Dr. Lisa McLeod, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina, gives a presentation on colorblind racism and how and why it exists. Um, I want to thank Claire and uh, Jennifer Shaw for encouraging me to come here tonight and for Julie Peebles and Paul for making the church available. Uh, really everyone at UCC who's been doing this work regularly. Uh, I would like to lift up and bring into the room the folks who built the church, the folks who take care of the building and clean it regularly. I would like to also bring into the room the indigenous people who once called this land home. And I want to give thanks to all the people of color, especially the queer and disabled people of color who have taught me so much and continue to teach me. I also want to thank Vance Ricks, my partner, who uh, has to listen to me ramble about this topic uh, quite regularly. Um, but nevertheless has provided some excellent suggestions for making this talk clearer tonight. So first, um, hello, <laughs> it's nice to be here. Um, I think for a lot of us who grew up, say, before this decade, uh, it's difficult to understand how colorblindness could be a bad thing. What could be racist about being colorblind? Um, why would it be wrong to try not to see race? And so as a philosopher, what I'm going to do is something that philosophers often do. I'm going to ask us to turn this question around and ask, what is wrong with seeing race? Is it impolite to notice someone's race? Why would that be? Is there something embarrassing? about being a person of color. You can't read it up there maybe, but it says, is it like when someone has spinach stuck in their teeth? Or is it like when we're in the presence of someone who has a physical disability and it makes us uncomfortable? And so that just remains unspoken. This is a great photograph of Frida Kahlo, the famous Mexican painter who is not only a woman of color, but a disabled person. This is uh, her in the hospital after one of her surgeries, um, making paintings on her body casts. Um, and what I love about this picture is just because if I were in the hospital after a surgery, I would just be lying there miserable um, looking at magazines. But her art was such a big part of her life. And I think it's also important to bring into the room that Frida's Mexicanness was central not only to who she was as a person, but to her artistic project. And in some ways, she really turned the art world around in the middle of the century because of her insistence that her indigeneity and her Mexicanness was central to her lived experience. If there is racial inequality in our society, I wonder whether we can actually see it without seeing race. 
You might not recognize uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor here, who once talked about being a wise Latina and the ways in which her experience, her lived experience as a person of color was gonna bring something to the bench that some of her white colleagues would not be bringing to the bench. This is a chart you may have seen before um, or something like it during this series of talks. This is a chart of the groups most likely to be killed by law enforcement. So if you look at the very bottom, that short blue bar, that is the number of killings of citizens per millions per year. The average for all races and ages is 1.2 people per million per year. Every other bar on the way up is an African-American, Latino, or Native American group of, in an age group. So you can see that your likelihood of being killed by law enforcement goes from down below one, if you're a white person, all the way up to more than seven times that if you're an African American between the ages of 20 and 24. So I think when we look at statistics like this, first of all, we couldn't have statistics like this if we didn't take account of people's racial identity. One of the things that folks from Brazil have talked about is how difficult it's been to really talk about racism in Brazil because the, the nation of Brazil has a policy where they don't take account of, they don't mention, they don't recognize people's racial identity. And so it's been very difficult to gather empirical data about the way that skin color and racial identity make a difference to people's life chances in Brazil. Here in the United States, we at least haha, can see the impact of different racial identities on people's life choices. But we're still left with the question, those of us who were raised in a certain time period, what could possibly be racist about being colorblind? In a perfect world, racial identity wouldn't matter. And I think a lot of us felt like if we could just act as if racial identity didn't matter, if we could all act that way, then we could actually bring that world into being. If we could all treat each other the same, then we could bring that world into being. And some of you might have been in the presence of young children under the age of five in a grocery store or somewhere else in public. If you are a white person with a, a majority white family and your, your child sees a person of color for the first time and comments on it, look at the chocolate man, daddy. What will your first, my first reaction, the way I was trained is to say, shh, don't say that. You'd be terribly embarrassed. You could laugh. It's kind of funny, right, to be in that embarrassing position. Honey, shh, we don't, shh. Well, what you want to convey to your child is that it's rude to point. <laughs> it's rude to make comments about people's appearance. But your child has now begun, as I did as a young, young person, on this strange journey where there's something that seems very obviously different about a group of people 
that we're not supposed to talk about. And you might remember from being a child that the things that you're not supposed to talk about are not really the good things. So I would say we know that in this world race does matter. Based on the statistics you've heard from other speakers uh, in this series, this is obviously a woodcut that's depicting Trayvon Martin, sorry, Trayvon Martin in his sweatshirt. Um, you can't read the woodcut around, but it's a quote from Ella Baker, who helped put together the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee in the 1960s. This is a quote from her from 1964. Until the killing of black men, black mothers' sons, becomes as important to the rest of the country as the killing of a white mother's son, we who believe in freedom cannot rest until this happens. So I would argue that folks who insist that black lives matter are not trying to suggest that other lives don't matter. They're trying to suggest that we have been acting as if black lives don't matter. And it's our job, all of our jobs, to work against a social sphere that suggests that black lives are worth less, that people of color are worth less than white people. This, of course, is Sandra Bland, who was stopped by a Texas police officer for failing to use a turn signal uh, when she changed lanes. Um, and for some reason, <laughs> an officer decided to pull her over and stop her. Maybe she had a tail light out. And that innocent, neutral, normal, everyday traffic stop which I myself would have gotten out of with a warning. And I know I've been stopped on the side of the road and officers have said, how are you? And I'm charming. And I say, oh, what's the problem, officer? And they say, your traffic light is out. You're going to need to get that fixed, right? But for Sandra Bland, it turned into not just a physical altercation and an arrest, but she ended up dying in police custody. And the investigation still hasn't explained how did Sandra Bland die or why. But what we do know is that would not have happened to me. Whatever else went on down there in Texas, that would not have happened to me. And it's not because I'm so polite and, and very good looking. It's because, right, I, um, I used to be able to say a young white woman. <laughs> then I hit 50, so I'm not young but I'm still a white woman. And officers treat me with a certain modicum of respect because they think they're working to keep the world safe for me. But they don't feel that way about Sandra Bland. White people don't always understand what it means to say that race is still part of the story. But there are stories we cannot tell today in the US without talking about race. This is a photograph of Walter Scott some of you will remember he was the gentleman who was, again, pulled over in a traffic stop by the police, somehow engage, uh, became engaged in an altercation and tried to flee for his life when he felt he was in danger. The officer shot him in the back several times. And we would not know this. And we would not know that the police officer tried to plant his taser on Mr. Scott's body if it weren't for a bystander who was taking a video of this event. If it weren't for the video, we would just have heard that Walter Scott 
resisted arrest and was killed in the altercation. We would not have known that Walter Scott was 20 feet from the officer who shot at him when he died. And I think it's very difficult to understand that story if we try to ignore the race of Walter Scott in North Charleston, South Carolina. So you may have heard this before, but I would say that ignoring race is going to help keep the system in place. Now this is weird because I'm telling you that racist things happen to people. And so then it suggests that we should stop paying attention to race. But I also want to suggest if we try to stop paying attention to race, then we can't make sense of the racism that is present in our society. Even in a perfect world, imagine one day there's no more racism. We, we used to think all the time uh, in the 70s and 80s when we were arguing about affirmative action, one of the big questions was, when will we know to stop? When are we going to know how to stop affirmative action? When will we know it's enough? As if we were going to get, like within our lifetimes, to a time when racism was no longer a problem. Well, imagine that we got there. But there are still some people, I think, whose racial identity and history and heritage is going to mean a lot to them. So even in a perfect world, racial identity might matter. If you have friends or acquaintances of color, trying not to see their race could mean dishonoring their experience or ignoring something that they think is very important to them. So I have a hodgepodge of photographs here. Um, <laughs> the black and white uh, on the left is a rapper named M.I.A. who's from Sri Lanka. Um, top middle is Beyonce. We'll be talking a little bit about her. Uh, George Takei again, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda from the stage play Hamilton, Malala Yousafzai, right, the children's and women's rights activist, uh, down at the bottom, Sherman Alexie, who is an award-winning author of Native American descent. None of these people, I think, are going to get to the point beyond racism and think, that's it. Now it doesn't matter to me anymore who my ancestors were. So as a philosopher, I'm going to go back to this question. Why were we ever supposed to ignore race? And the answer, I would put sort of bluntly, is because race seemed like a kind of unfortunate thing to happen to a person. Remember back before white people had a race? When other people had races? Right? Other people were ethnic. We were just like normal people, right? So race seemed like an unfortunate thing to happen to a person. This is a, a pictorial drawing of Solomon Northup, right? the man who was depicted in 12 Years a Slave. When we see these kinds of depictions of people of color, it's hard not to think that maybe that was kind of unfortunate for people to be of color at a certain time in history. You'll recognize Octavia Spencer from The Help, perhaps. Um, up on the right from my childhood, Cicely Tyson as Miss Jane Pittman. In the middle in color from the film Sounder. When I was growing up, we saw these depictions of very brave, awesome people of color who were in terrible, terrible situations. 
And I think part of the reason why we felt it was important not to notice people's racial identity was because it, it wasn't a happy thing to have a non-white racial identity. It meant struggle, it meant suffering. Even if your mom, who I wish my mom sort of had been Betty White, um, even if your mom always told you, honey, they're just like us. We're all the same. But we weren't stupid, right? We could see the things happening around us. And we knew that even if we were somehow the same underneath, things were very different for people of color. Notice also that your mom never said, oh, we're just like them to white people, right? We are at the center, and they are just like us. And I want to give credit to that, uh, for that to Shannon Sullivan, who's a, a philosopher now at UNC Charlotte. Right? But that's how it was. We, we're the normal people. And if you see someone who looks different, don't, you know, don't mention it. They're just like us. But that doesn't give us a lot of information to go on. So they're just like us, except when we're not all the same. So I'm just going to have to explain this a little bit. It's a, it's a, it came from a video of two black women on The Daily Show, I think, who are talking to each other. And one of them is saying to the other, whoa, 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 OK, wait. We're throwing around, <laughs> throwing around a lot of words here. Let's take a second and let the white people catch up. <laughs> because it turns out right, that when people of color are able to talk to each other alone, they understand a lot of things by shorthand that white people aren't going to understand when we listen. That's because they have different experiences than we do. So we're not the same. But it's been always difficult in this country to accept that people could be different without being better or worse. And so I think it takes some time to get over a bad habit. But there's actually two bad habits involved I think, in whiteness in the United States. The first bad habit was, was being actively racist and assuming that we were, we were normal and we were the best and everybody else had to measure up to our standards if they were going to fit in. That was the first bad habit. And then the second bad habit was just to start telling our children not to talk about it and to try not to see it. <coughs> as if when we don't talk about things that are out there, we really do make them go away. This is Justice Harry Blackman from the US Supreme Court. He died some years ago, but he's one of my heroes. He came to speak at my uh, law school while I was still there. He said in a 1978 uh, case about affirmative action, he says, in order to get beyond racism, we must first take account of race. There's no other way. So while several of his white colleagues on the court are saying, look, it's <coughs> unconstitutional to treat people differently on the basis of their race. And so many of us are thinking of that as absolutely almost biblical. It is wrong to treat people differently on the basis of their race. 
Harry Blackman began to see, because he, he was a, a colleague and friend of Justice Thurgood Marshall, that you know what? When things actually are different on the basis of race, we might have to notice that. This is a little joke. <laughs> Maybe you've heard about white privilege and unpacking your invisible knapsack. And it makes you sad and horrified that there's all these things that you are able to do as a white person that a person of color can't do. And so it's difficult as a white person to really come to terms with the kinds of things where I don't have to worry about being stopped by a police officer. No matter what town I'm in, no matter what time of day it is, which isn't to say that it doesn't make me nervous, because it totally does. But I know, realistically, that that officer is going to see me as one of his or her constituents and not as a threat. And all I would have had to be was Sandra Bland to have that story be very different. So one thing you have probably been hearing about or may have heard about is uh, the notion of implicit bias or unconscious racism. So one of the things I wanted to say about the trouble with colorblindness and why colorblind racism is a problem is because when we think we're not paying attention to race, our, our human brains are so big and amazing, they can do a bunch of different things at once, and we're usually only paying attention to one of them. So there are just a couple of, of cases here that I've pulled out of a New York Times story, and I have some uh, sources for you that I can let you have afterward. So cardiologists who were consulted in heart disease cases were much less likely to recommend effective procedures for black patients, even when their medical files were statistically identical to those of white patients. So you imagine being a, a cardiologist and getting a stack of files to consult, right, about a, about a treatment plan. And you start looking through them, and this pile, you you suggest this kind of treatment, and this pile you suggest this kind of treatment, and this is cardiac catheterization, which I managed to just say as if I say it all the time, cardiac catheterization, right? That's an effective, efficient manner, apparently, of treating heart disease. But if you are a black patient, you are much less likely to be recommended for cardiac catheterization. Now, do I think that doctors are looking at files and seeing that they have an African-American patient and thinking to themselves, well, those guys don't deserve cardiac catheterization. We only have so many of those catheters to go around. I don't think they're thinking that. I don't know what they're thinking. I think they're just trying to be good doctors. This is a fairly famous statistic that when people go to buy cars, the same salesperson will offer the same car to a white person for $700 less than he would, or she, to an African-American buyer. And also during negotiations, they're likely to give smaller concessions to the African-American customer. That means it's expensive to be African-American in this country. Because it's not just cars. 
There are other market items where there are different market standards for people in different races. Are car salespeople being told, <laughs> look out for those black customers, they have all the money. <laughs> I don't think they're being told that. But there, for some reason, this is statistically predictable across different car salespeople in different areas of the country. This hits home for me. Faculty members at universities often get emails from people asking about opportunities to do research within their labs. I'm a philosopher, I don't have a lab, so I don't really understand how all of this works. But I know there's a lot of money in university research, in university science labs. So people will offer to collaborate with scientists who have labs in universities. And it turns out if the person inquiring has a name that sounds what we think of as stereotypically African-American, they are far less likely to get an email back from that head researcher. Whereas if a stereotypically white name is attached to the email, they are much more likely to respond. And in academia, especially for scientists, the ability to get into a research lab is pretty much your whole career. So, <laughs> Bay Love, I'm not quite sure how you would fare getting an email, email from Bayard Love. Hmm, I'm not sure. You might have heard about these resume studies. These are very chilling to me, and I actually uh, almost hate to speak about them. I have many friends uh, and colleagues of color. I also have friends who have children of color. My friends are starting to name their children names that will not appear non-white on resumes because they know about these studies. So researchers have sent out um, identical resumes under uh, an apparently white name and uh, under apparently black names. The resumes that have apparently white names receive 50% more callbacks for interviews than the ones, than identical resumes under stereotypically black names. For white candidates, a better quality resume can increase your callback chances by 30%. But if, you, if your name is stereotypically a name of color, much less, much less increase in your odds of getting a callback even when they add a master's degree, a PhD to that resume. A resume that has a white name and a criminal record is still favored over a resume with a black name and no criminal record. I have this graph. So if you can see the, the brown bar, I guess that's brown, on the right hand side, that's when both candidates have a criminal record. You can see that white candidates still have a 17% callback rate. On the right hand side, the blue bar is the black, black names with no criminal record. 
That's a callback rate of 14%. How is it? And again, I don't think employers are sitting at their desks looking for white people. I don't think that's how employers do when they're getting resumes. But you have to then think to yourself, as an employer, what happens in your mind and heart when you see a resume from someone whose name does not scream whiteness to you? So were all those doctors, car sales folk, and faculty being colorblind or not? That's a trick question, and I think the answer is yes and no. That's Minerva's owl. I'm a philosopher, so the answer to every question is going to be kind of yes, kind of no. And here's where I come to um, what Claire was asking me about, because the subtitle of my talk is Accepting Yancey's Gift. George Yancey is a African, an African-American philosopher who um, is currently at Emory University. And over 2015, he did a number of interviews in a New York Times newspaper column called The Stone. Somehow they're giving philosophers voice in the New York Times. So he did a bunch of interviews with people. And then in December of last year, he wrote a column called Dear White America. And it was a plea to white people for us to really think about our own racism. I'm asking you to enter into battle with your white self. I'm asking that you open yourself up to speak to, to admit to, the racist poison that is inside you. <coughs> now, if I didn't know George, I'd be thinking, George, you don't know me. You don't know there's racist poison inside me. But George doesn't mean racist poison that I am generating. He means the racist poison that I have absorbed, right? Because I've lived in this country. That's George. And he offers us a, a pattern to follow. Because he says he's a man, but he's sexist. He's, he thinks he's a good guy, but he also knows that he's a sexist. He says he's been fed a poisonous diet of images that fragment women into mere body parts. So if you think about advertising that shows just parts of women. I was going to put some on the slide, and then I thought, we've seen enough of that. So every day of my life, I fight against the dominant male narrative, choosing to see women as subjects, not objects. But even as I fight, there are moments of failure, right? So here are some women from popular media who I think have been presented mostly as subjects. If you don't recognize them, that's fine. You can think of your favorite, favorite uh, <coughs> media character who's a woman. But even for these characters who are relatively advanced, there are still moments of failure in them as well. George writes, I'm asking you to tarry, to linger, with the ways in which you perpetuate a racist society, the ways in which you are racist, just the way he perpetuates a sexist society, he says. I'm suggesting a form of love that enables you to see the role that you play, even despite your anti-racist actions, in a system that continues to value black lives on the cheap. 
Now, it's pretty unusual for a professional philosopher to talk about love. But I think what Dr. Yancey is trying to say is that for us to really enter into honest dialogue with people of color, we have to risk that we are going to make mistakes. And we have to be able to know that we can make those mistakes and still be good people. And we have to know that those mistakes don't define who we are. So that being aware of people's race might actually be the right thing. <laughs> this is Yancey's gift. This is a joke. This is from a website called Black People Love Us. And it's about uh, this white couple who has a lot of black friends. And what they don't realize is that their black friends sort of barely tolerate them. And why don't they realize this? Well, because they're white people. And so, <laughs> sorry, because they think that they are really important, right? They are so busy trying to show how good they are because they have these white friends. Sorry, they have these black friends. They have these friends of color. And you've probably heard this line, some of my best friends, right? I have to tell you, you don't actually, you, you have friends who are people of color, but it turns out that your friends who are people of color might not be totally honest with you all the time. They might not tell you everything that you do that drives them crazy. Because that's work, right? And it's not really up to them to fix you. So they might not tell you every time that you're not really acting like a friend to them. And that's sort of the joke about this, this little website, is that these white people are so oblivious to how they are really seen. You can see they're at the center, they're looking at each other, they're having a great party, and their friends around them. I'm not sure why they're there, actually. I think we need to learn to see race, but remove our racist filters. And that means doing some very difficult work. I'm not sure I told you what, that work, what kind of work that was here. OK, here's some, right? Do I intervene in a system in which I see racist patterns recurring? So on the, on the bottom left there. Uh, in, our, in my college, we have a tendency of hiring white people to positions of power. And again, it's not because anybody at our college thinks, this is a white college. We better keep white people in positions of power. But for one reason and another, I think white people want to hire people they can imagine being colleagues and friends with, people they imagine being comfortable with. Have you ever heard this at a place of work? We, had, we wanted to hire that candidate because they were a good fit with our business culture. But if you think about the history of this country, people who are going to be a, a good fit with existing business cultures are probably not people of color. Even though they would probably be a good fit, they're not going to look like they're a good fit. Do I show real solidarity with friends and colleagues who are people of color? Um, this bottom right, you might not recognize Steve, uh, Steve Colbert. 
This is his joke. This is his black friend. This is Stephen Colbert's black friend. And the joke there is that I think as white people, we tend, again, we use people of color for all kinds of things to make ourselves feel better. In the end, uh, love of others, and I think love of ourselves, right, a concern for our own dignity and integrity, requires that we do pay attention to race, that we do intervene in patterns we see that uphold a kind of white supremacy. This is um, one comic from a 10 comic panel uh, about uh, a man's um, having the talk with his son. So what you can't see there is uh, the little boy is playing with his um, little cars and action figures. And he's saying, wee-oo, wee-oo, don't worry everyone, the police are here to save you. And his father behind him is saying, son, we need to talk. And that's just one of the thousands of ways I think that white people don't always see how different our world is from people of color. I was taught that police were my friends. But my friends of color were sat down by their parents and told that when the police stop your car, you put your hands at 10 and 2, you make sure that all of your documentation is reachable without any fumbling in the glove compartment. Because if my child is a black child, I will be terrified that they will become one of those numbers that were in the graph that I showed you early on about murders, about killings by police, right? And so what Yancey asks us to do at the end of his paper at the end of his letter to white America, is that we go, if we have small children, when you watch them sleep, as you do, because it's an, so grateful when they fall asleep, <laughs> right? And they're so beautiful at rest. You smell their hair and you, you count their fingers, he says, and then I want you to imagine that your child is black. And I think that's something that being an anti-racist white person demands of us, that we pay that kind of attention to racial differences which exist. It doesn't mean that you have to view racial differences as a negative thing, but you have to see how they do act in our society. Thank you. And there's plenty of time for questions. Hi, Bay. Um, I have a question. Can you can you talk about um, whether white people in the states have always been as colorblind as we are? Because I have this sense that you know, in my grandfather's generation, they were more overt about it. question. Yeah, of course. So Bay says um, to ask me to talk about historically whether, um, say, our, our grandparents' generation, weren't they more overtly um, attentive to racial differences and more bigoted? And I think it's true that people were much more open. Um, I heard my grandmother, when I was in college, tell racist jokes with her neighbor. And I was like, Grandma, <coughs> that's not OK. And so she tried to stop when I was around. 
Um, so I do think that it is less polite in our current culture to say things about people's race, but that can also get very ridiculous, right? When, uh, if we were talking about George Takei, you'll remember he was Mr. Sulu on the Starship Enterprise. You might not remember that, but he was. He was, he was Japanese. And so if you were trying to refer to him without referring to his race, right, it can get very difficult to dance around somebody's racial identity when you're trying to refer to them. And the only reason you dance around referring to their racial identity is because you think it must imply something distasteful, right? If you're not willing to name their racial identity. So if I say that, you know, Mr. Sulu was the Japanese helmsman on the Starship Enterprise, hope that's not all I'm going to say about him. But it's not irrelevant to his character, to him as a person. Yes? Does colorblindness and colorism kind of go hand in hand? I guess because the root cause is that you don't see color, even if it's shades of color, but we don't see color, but we really do. So the question was whether colorblindness and colorism go together. And so by colorism, you mean the practice of sort of valuing lighter skin over darker skin. Yeah, I imagine it would go because you, you pretend that you're not seeing race but it, it does, it somehow creeps into the decisions that you make. And I think also, um, if you think about the, the people of color who have really succeeded in our culture, they're very light-skinned. Yeah, they're very light-skinned. I mean, you know, I have, no, I have nothing but admiration for Beyonce, but it's clear, right, that she is a very light-skinned, Woman, and I think that that's something that the United States has to really think about: is to what extent our racism has now shifted, um, so that it's it's still very difficult for a dark-skinned person of color to. I hear that. Yes. We write a book. Between the World of Eve by Tanisha Coates, he's writing a letter to his son, but he indicates in there that maybe a few hundred years ago, the Middle Ages and so forth, there was no whiteness or blackness or brownness. Uh, and I think, you know, literature from that time sort of indicates that. They would say the country a person was from or what region, but not anything to do with their skin color. So yeah. what happened? <laughs> so the gentleman asks, um, if there was a time um, before the 16th century when race was not, thank you, when race didn't seem relevant to um, people's personal identities, but also to their sort of life chances, what happened? Um, and this, to put it blunt, bluntly and simply, I, I would say that European colonialism really happened, that as um, Europe was sailing all the oceans blue to find resources for its sort of industrial growth. It kept, it kept coming upon populated areas that were rich in natural resources. And we can go all the way back to the 13th century where <laughs> the Pope um, somehow got word that it was his job to divide up the, the entire earth between the Spanish and the Portuguese so that the Spanish could have half the globe and the Portuguese could have the other half of the globe. 
And where they came upon unchristian people, their job was to convert or enslave or murder them. And so I think that mindset carried on throughout um, the colonization period. So if you look at all the different European countries, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, England, right? If you follow the routes of their travels, you see them coming upon these populated lands, but really, really, really wanting the resources there. And so they find a way, first by religion and then by race, to say, we don't really have to respect these folks this, the way we, we respect other Europeans. Sarah? Yeah, I would just add a footnote there. Slavery is the beginning in some ways, because when they began to sail, they also began to, um, to invade um, African, on the African continent and begin to transport uh, forced labor all around the world. And then slavery goes back farther than that. But, that, that but racialized slavery is a, is a new invention. Is, is a new invention of, the, of, of European industrialization. Yeah, and I'll just say one more um, yeah. <laughs> thing I can't stop saying because I'm a professor. Um, there's a really interesting sort of horrible moment um, in, in the 17th century when European philosophers start, start inventing this thing called human rights. They start inventing this thing, right, when they're starting to overthrow monarchies. Because remember, monarchies ruled by the divine right of kings. And starting to hold up democracy as the proper form of government for rational people. So rational human beings became very exciting to all these people. And they thought, OK, we now we have human rights. And those kings can't be telling us what to do. But at the very moment they're, they're developing these beautiful treatises on human rights and what's so great about us, what makes us godlike, is our capacity to reason and understand the universe. They're also trying to exploit these populations that they find on other continents. And so as time goes on, when we hit the 19th century in the United States, there's so much force behind the abolitionist movement. Because the abolitionist movement says, these black people are my brother. right? They're my sisters. They're humans, too. And so the pro-slavery movement has to put together a theory about why we don't have to recognize their human rights. And that's where you get pseudoscience in the service of, of race, where people start measuring craniums and they say that black people, you might have heard this, <laughs> why black people are so good at basketball. You might have heard they have extra muscles in their legs. This is false, right? There are no genetic differences between people of color and white people, except for the tiny, tiny differences that code for whether or not you have melanin in your skin, which is another whole long story about populations spreading northward. We all started with dark skin, and then the further north we moved, lighter skin was adaptively advantageous. So as the abolitionist movement is, is putting on steam in the United States, pro-slavery people are paying scientists to say, don't worry, those people of color are beneath us in every single way. So as some historians have pointed out, if we had just had slavery by force, and then when it ended, we had said, OK, now we're not going to do that anymore, 
things might have gone a certain way. But since we had spent generations convincing ourselves as white people, that African descended people, that Native American people, that Chinese people, that Mexican people were so inferior to us, so as to justify the kind of exploitation and genocide we were engaged in, that ideology stuck with us. And, and you can still obviously find it today on white supremacist sites on the internet, claiming to prove scientifically right, that white people are genetically superior, which is just not, not just wrong, it's genetically impossible. So sorry, there was a very long answer to your question. Yeah. I am beyond being a, a parent, grandparent now, but if you were raising young children, how do you draw the line between teaching them to be honest versus being rude? Like we don't point, like I said, at people and say, look at the black man, but you don't also say there's a man with a blue necktie and a white shirt when the most obvious thing is he's a black man or when our little kid was in preschool, they told the story once, he sat there and a little, he asked the little black girl why she was black, and she just turned around and said, well, why are you white? Which was a, you know, perfectly honest exchange. Right. But then there is rudeness. So mm -hmm. somehow um, you don't want to try to teach them that you don't recognize race when that's the most obvious feature. And also there was some, um, also ethnic, not just race, like the immigrant floods of the, of the Germans and the Irish, and we always have to have somebody to pick on. Right, yeah, and I think, I mean, I, you know, I would be as embarrassed as anybody, you know, if, if the toddler I was traveling with, you know, made a big, right. But then I think the best you, the best you can do is say, well, you know, oh right, he has darker skin just like we have lighter skin, right? But I think it's important to point out that your white skin is also like an accident of nature. It's not like a normal thing. It's, it's just how, right, it's just how we are. And yeah, there were, um, in some ways, um, there's a great book by Nell Irvin Painter called The History of White People. And so, <laughs> and so she looks at the United States and how all these different immigrant communities coming in were sort of trained um, how to be white. Um, Henry Ford used to have little ceremonies for um, workers who came to work in his factories, where um, at the end of their, they got language training and some other kinds of things. And at the end, when they graduated, um, they would go behind a curtain and take off their sort of German hat and lederhosen or whatever, right? And they would put on an American straw hat and come out waving an American flag as if Right? They were graduated now. They were Americans. So, yeah, there's so much history coming out on this stuff now. It's really fascinating. Yeah. You know, um, I really appreciated your presentation today. And I, uh, you know, the whole idea of um, whether or not to acknowledge a person's race and what the damage you do if you don't. But I've been in numerous situations where <coughs> white people be recounting something in the group. And they will say, and so I was. I went to see this black kid, or um, there was a black or African American woman, and it will offend the African Americans in the room 
and they will say, um, why didn't you just say uh, you wouldn't see a boy? Right. And uh, <clears throat> along with that, in reading a, a recently a book by um, Sun Chan Ra, who is uh, writing about prophetic men in the book, he talks about when you, um, if you just say uh, it's um, theology, then if you say, well, no, that's black theology, that's Asian theology, the minute you add an adjective to it, it's less than mainline theology, which is white theology. <coughs> so is that related to the events in the meeting? So, I, first of all, I would say uh, that we, we are all um, trying to act properly within a system that, that really has set us up, right? To not, if not to fail, to make a lot of mistakes and to not quite know what to do. Um, I do think that there are moments when white people will point out the race, sorry, I keep pointing it out, y'all, will point out the race of, of somebody in a story where it doesn't seem relevant, right? It just doesn't seem to have any bearing on the story and then you have to wonder, well, why was he trying to insert that into the story? And so there's times when it, it really, <laughs> strangely enough, or race doesn't really matter. If you, you went to talk to a kid, so you went to talk to a kid. And so I think it's always incumbent on us to, to again, to examine our motives, which are you know, not always available to us, even when we're trying really hard to figure out why we did what we did. Um, but to figure out, like, does this make a difference? Similarly, when we're describing theology or literature, right? We talk about African-American, like, this was the best work of African-American literature. And somebody says, well, why are you saying it's the best work of African-American literature? Why isn't it just the best piece of literature? And I think, again, there's times when it's relevant to point out whether you're talking about black theology because there are different strains in black theology than there are in white theology. So sometimes it makes sense to, to articulate, right? What, what branch of theology are we talking about? What region of the world are we talking about? Um, it would be good if we lived in a world where adding the modifier did not indicate sort of a, a lesser um, status and I think then that we just have to be careful that we're not indicating a lesser status that we're pointing out that that specificity for a good reason I think that's the best I can yeah I'm gonna go Greg and then back to you well I think something I would add to that point is um, I did it in your example about black theology and white theology and I just want to raise up that point um, that often time we will talk about literature and never talk about white authors but we will identify authors of colors right. by their that Black or Native Americans ought to be aware of ourselves that we aren't being 
making right normative, but saying right authors or European American authors or, um, so I just want to raise up that point to if I not if I decentering rightness through our own everyday language. Yeah, I mean, so I think what Greg is saying is right, that a lot of times we just assu we assume that if there's no modifier, we mean a white person, yeah. right? But since we, <laughs> since white people are not normal, I mean, really, look at the planet, <laughs> right? <laughs> we are not the majority, we are not the norm. Yes, go ahead. That, um, of course. In the 60s, we were reading, do you know the name Frances Cress Welsing from the, okay, you've been around the block. She talked about the fact that perhaps the white reaction to non-white people has to do with the fact that there is an internal understanding of what a small percentage of the world's humans are Caucasoid. And so it's almost an irrational uh, survival kind of like, <laughs> you're going to kill us all with it. And we have, that theory kind of, it kind of disappeared, I guess, when Frances <coughs> sort of went about her way. Right. Um, but I have not heard anyone in the last 20 years even posit that or think about it or talk about it. I don't think anyone's positing it on, on that side of the aisle. But certainly if you look at white supremacist literature, <laughs> if you look at white supremacist literature, white su white people in white supremacist movements are very, very nervous about the disappearance of the white race. Um, and I can't quite get, anyway, <laughs> I can't quite get worried about it. You know, I, I just think, you know, humans, we're gonna keep going. There will be humans, you know, and then humans will be cool and terrible, we'll do, be all the things we are. Um, whether or not there are continue to be people who I, are identified as white or not. But yeah, I think that that, I think, I think what has come out in anti-racist literature um, primarily is this notion that white people fear losing power. So maybe not, not so much the fear of becoming, well, no, because in the Browning of America literature, that's where it is, right? So we do, we do worry about becoming not, not the norm. And uh, I, I just want to catch you up before I, I forget. I think that I came to later your presentation. I apologize. But I think that what, what for me, I see the biggest issue, with color, one of the biggest issues with colorblindness is dealing with biracial children and how biracial children are viewed from the black community and how biracial children are viewed from the white community. The black community, <coughs> you know, and to be transparent, it's more of a, you know, what? You know, a, a, like a WTF type thing because you see someone who's identifying as black, but as all, but as all of the white features, hair, eyes, a lot of times, depends on, again, that colorism scale of where you fall on that spectrum. But biracial children and adults have the ability to navigate two worlds and they're on that fence. And so then from the black community, it's like, okay, well, you know, we, you know we, we acknowledge you, we accept you, but at the same time, you're still privileged. And on the white side, you see as the stain of the family, the black sheep of the family, and, or there's just a complete and total denial that this child is any different than any of the white children. And so for the grandparents and people in the room, if you have um, 
a black identified grandchild, or if you would have, that's where the colorblindness comes into play. Either I treat them all the same, you can't because they're not all the same. And that's where you fight between that implicit bias and that, well, how do I recognize, you know, my and, and my black child, a black identified grandchild or children, that and the other, but it's a two side and we struggle with that in the black community with biracial children as to how to, how to identify. Well, they're saying they're black. You have some who joke and say, I celebrate Black History Month to the 14th, and after that, I can't do it anymore. Uh, you know, you have, I mean, some of On the other hand, it's only one month out of 12. Yeah, one month out of 12. So well, just maybe like, they should yeah. celebrate it for six months. Exactly, but yeah. you have like the Mariah Carey's where, you know, you identify at the BET Awards, then you go to the MTV. So you're black when it's convenient, and that's what we're finding a lot of times with biracial people in the black community. You're black when it's convenient. Yeah. I, so. I don't have a ton to say about, about this. I, I do want to say, right, biracial children, like, like all people of color, right, come in a spectrum. So it's not, right, it's not as if all biracial children can, can pass, which there's a concept that I don't really want to get into right now. Um, but, but I do, so here's what I think. I think for kids, it's important for them to know, right, that they have, they have two parents. And, and, and that both of their parents love them. I know, how? Yeah. If you whitewash that biracial child and they grow up not being able to identify, you know, really relate, well, I don't know how to relate to a black woman. I've actually been in a, a rape, anti-racist training to where women said, I don't know how to name one thing I like about being a black woman. And her response was, I can't. Right. I can't identify one thing I like about being a black right. woman because I don't see myself as a black woman. Right. I see myself as Bethany. So I identify as Bethany, not as my race. And so you have a complete disconnect. I hope that's not her real name because you just broke a rule. No, no, it's not <laughs> no. Yeah, so the world is a terrible mess. So nobody, I don't, nobody wants to say that these questions are easy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I saw you in, uh, for a little while. Well, I just was reacting to the thing about um, white people holding on, not wanting to lose power. And I felt like one of, besides the backlash to President Obama, which has been horrific, and the you know increase in hate groups, you know all that, <coughs> um, what really stood out to me was watching um, Justice Sotomayor's confirmation hearings. Mm. And the level of just horrific insult when you watch people like um, Sessions from South Carolina doing Ricky Ricardo impersonations. And I mean, beyond microaggression, I mean, just not taking any responsibility for, you know, doing their work around their privilege and holding on by their fingernails to power and being so offensive. And I felt like that was just such a perfect example of that and um, just beyond disrespectful. And, you know, nobody was talking about that. I mean, not mainstream. I'm sure plenty of people were talking about it, but not white people. And, and I think it does point out, I mean, I think that white people are actually pretty deeply uh, scarred by having to maintain this notion that, that we are white and we are better. And that, you know, and so I think for some people it comes, we all lose because that's my humanity, right? My inability to um, treat with humanity people of color. Um, this is, I, 
I had, when I, I worked as a lawyer in Los Angeles in the early 90s, and I worked in a state building, and there was a woman who came around um, every night to empty the garbage, and she was an African-American woman. She must have been in her 60s. And I was so aware of the gulf between us. But I was a good liberal person, too. So I, you know, I, had, I was very cheerful and friendly, like probably overly friendly, and she probably thought I was, what? <laughs> what are you trying to do? Um, but it, the system of racism has really made it difficult for just to act like human beings with each other. And I think there's sessions, I, I don't know what he thought he was acting out, right? But, but clearly he's warped by this trying to hang on, as you were saying. It's very sad. Yes? You said earlier that as a philosopher, you told us, well, I'm not going to go this way or that way because I'm a philosopher. <laughs> but you said, you, quote, you were quoting Yancey, speak to the racist poison inside you. This is what he wants us to do. I have to say, first of all, if I did that, I couldn't work at AMT the way I have for the last 20 years. I couldn't teach. Sorry, so, I'm sorry. Could I clarify? If you if you did what? Well, if if I went if I went to AMT every day, thinking that I have racist poison inside of me, mm. I would be incapacitated. So, uh, I'm I'm just. I'm just wondering about this. Um, that's a pretty deep thing to say, and I'm wondering if you can apply that universally to white people. I, I'm not sure that you can do that, and I, I, and not just because of my own experience, but because as an historian, I can point out countless times when white people have stood up against their interests in support of black people. I agree. So John Brown is one of my heroes. And John Brown, you probably have heard of John Brown because his baby had a cold upon him. <laughs> anyway, um, John Brown was an uh, anti-slavery crusader. He was one of the only white Americans in history to take up arms against slavery and try to start, uh, try to start a war. Um, and his raid on Harper's Ferry was in October of 1859. Um, he tried to gather other white people and um, to, as they went along, to emancipate slaves who would join his army and, and draw blood in the service of ending slavery. But John Brown himself was not free of racism. And you can see it in his letters that he wrote. Um, he, he had a Christian love for all people and he certainly loved um, the black people with whom he worked more than he loved most of his white neighbors. But that doesn't mean that he didn't still carry with him deep down um, and in ways that came out in some of his writing um, the, the notion that there was some, some weakness in the black character that needed a little bit of shoring up by Christianity or other means so that black people could really thrive in the United States. And I think, um, I think Yancey's right. I think that white people who were raised in the US, in Canada, 
um, we're fed a constant diet of poisonous images. Um, when, I, <laughs> when I was growing up, one of the first TV shows I spotted on TV was The Mod Squad. And the Mod Squad, you know, were these three young hip cops, a white woman, a, a white man, and a black man. Um, and I must have been six or seven. I wanna, I'm, I'm gonna push me younger, because this makes me seem really stupid. It took me forever to figure out that Link was a good guy. Because he had a big afro. And in my world, people with big afros were scary people. And my parents were not explicit racist. They never said the N-word. They would have, you know, killed us for saying it. But I was still taught. I knew the N-word. I knew it meant something bad. But until I was about 10, I didn't know to whom it applied because I grew up in Orange County, California. Where <laughs> we had brown people but not black people. And so it took me a long time to figure out who it applied to. But even then, I knew right away even though I was a Bill Cosby fan from very, very young, I still knew, right? Because the whole world told me growing up, even when they were being anti-racist, they told me that the problem was with black people. The Moynihan Report, right, told us that these, these black, this black culture is so sick. So I don't, you might be the special guy, but there are plenty of implicit bias tests that people can take online and there are plenty of statistics that tell us that we will tend. Here's my favorite story. Tim Wise, who was a professional white anti-racist, he makes his living. I wish I knew how he did know. I'm not sure it's the right thing for white people to do, but he makes his living giving talks like this. He tells a story about um, boarding an airplane. And as he, it was a small plane, because he travels a lot, as he was getting in, he noticed that two, both the pilot and the co-pilot were both African-American. And that is, I mean, the odds of that are astronomically small. So Tim Wise, who's getting paid for 20 years to talk about how horrible racism is and how white people need to work on their racism, his first thought was not, what an awesome blow for racial justice. His first thought was, oh, I hope they can really fly these planes. And this, in the, you know, a split second, he realized the thought that he'd had. And so I think that's in all of us, all of us white people. Yeah, Barton? Uh, uh, I'd like to continue with this idea of, of being very thoroughly racist having a lot of racist attitudes <coughs> inside of oneself and also working for racial justice. Uh, I was born and raised in South Texas my first 25 years. There are not only black people, but there are a lot of Mexicans around. I was thoroughly doused in racism, just swamped with it. Uh, and by the time I got out of the state, uh, I couldn't meet a person of color without some kind of tension going on inside. Mm. I remember my first anti-racism workshop that I went to, two days work, I was so afraid that they were going to point out the racism in me that I couldn't really hear their message. Mm. I sat there just being afraid of having all this stuff 
pointed out about me. Later they said, we weren't going to do that. We already knew you were a racist. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that helped me tremendously for them to know that I had all this stuff in me and still they accepted me. Mm. The next thing that happened was a few years later, I was in, uh, uh, well, no, one more thing about my experience in, in Texas with, with Mexicans and black people, they were inferior. There was no doubt about it. They were incredibly inferior. And their skin color was the mark of that. The darker they were, the more inferior they were. And black was just ugly. I jump back to my learning process. In Birmingham, Alabama, I was attending a conference once, an anti-racism conference, and there was a white lawyer up on the stage. He's an old geezer. I mean, he was really an old codger. And he stood up there and he said, you know about these white people? We got this, this milky skin, this, this sickly-looking pale skin on us, you know, and I just wish I didn't have that. <coughs> well, I never will forget that. But mainly, a few weeks later, I was in the presence of a black woman, and I noticed how beautiful her skin was. I mean, I was astonished. It was no longer the black I carried around in my head for years. I saw her skin. God, it was beautiful. <laughs> and I also noticed other things about her as a person. That is a small step of, of getting out of that. And if, I, if I had to abolish the racism within me, in order to live among people of color, I just couldn't do it. Right? I'm 78 years old and I still have some of those things in me. I'm glad I got out of Texas when I did. <laughs> and, and I kind of want to follow up because I don't want to belittle what you're saying. I think, I think um, you know, there's all these metaphors about there's journeys and there's people being in different places on their journeys and people being more in touch and less in touch with the poison that are that's inside of them. So I, I don't, I think it's something that all white people have to confront. I, that doesn't mean that um, it has to be um, a horrible self-flagellating experience or that you can't interact with people of color because Right, we do and we have to. Um, but for me, it means trying to be aware of, of the, the two-pilot thought before I, I do anything, before I say anything, um, being aware that that's in me. And I, I figure that's, that's the best I can do um, for some time. Yeah. Um, I'm interested if we threw classism into the mix of the conversation, any additional thoughts you would have? Sure, that's not hard. <laughs> um, so I think this is fascinating. Uh, so historically, right, um, we have first W.B. Du Bois 
and then uh, David Rediger telling us that, in fact, in the U.S., one of the reasons why the U.S. doesn't have a vibrant labor movement like Europe does and other countries do <clears throat> is because um, the, the rich guys told the poor white guys, right, that if you, if you um, live properly and go by the American dream, one day you can be one of us guys as long as you don't join up with those people of color, those workers of color. And so race has been used, I think, as a divider. And I think there's some real documentation of this um, historically um, to prevent some like class solidarity. I also think that um, middle and upper class white people tend to think that lower class, working class white people are more racist than we are. There's a sort of um, stereotype of redneck racism. Um, and I think that racism shows up differently among working class and, and poor white people than it does among uh, middle and, and wealthy white people. Um, but, but I don't think that it's really worse. Um, um, and then, of course, you know, people of color also um, have class divides in their communities. But it's important, for me, it's important to know that class doesn't, doesn't ever stand in as a proxy for race because we know that wealthy people of color still face all kinds of racial discrimination. You might remember a couple of years ago when Henry Louis Gates Jr. was coming back from a conference on a late night trying to get into his difficult, sticky door in Cambridge and the Cambridge police decided he was probably breaking into somebody's house um, because he's a, a man of color. Um, so that wealthy people of color can be targeted for all kinds of discrimination based on their race. I'm not sure if, if I'm getting to your question. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, the whole, Greensburg simply has a huge um, population of Asian resettled people. Seeing as how they're newer to our population than the black people, how come they've been much more accepted rather than coming in and being at the bottom of the totem pole when the blacks moving up a notch? Um, That's a good question. So it's actually very complicated. Within um, sort of who we think of as Asian immigrants, there are um, there's sort of a broad variety of ethnicities and, and national origins. So depending upon your national origin as an Asian immigrant, you may or may not have family connections already in the United States. So people who are coming from China, Vietnam, and some other parts of Southeast Asia often have family who are here already or a strong working network. People who are coming from uh, Burma or other parts of Asia often do end up very, very far <laughs> down in the bottom in terms of poverty and discrimination. So I think that's, that's one. And then we also do have this um, stereotype of the model minority where we've never sort of had a stereotype that sort of led white people see African Americans as sort of model anything. We have had a different relationship with Asian countries. We've seen some Asian countries, we've, we've marveled at their civilizations, right, in China and Japan and other places. Whereas we have a very hard time, although there were 
plenty of very advanced and admirable civilizations in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, we won't even see Egypt, which is obviously an awesome civilization. We don't even think of that as an African civilization or a black one. So I think there's just a lot of stuff churning around in our minds and in, in the socio-political economy that kind of accounts for those apparent differences. On that, just to clarify, because how our country is set up is you have whites at one end of, you think of bookends, okay? You have white people on this bookend, blacks on the other. Asians are given white privilege and white advantage based on the potential and advantages of, of economic economics, sometimes, of economy and economics. And so, like, even right now when Latinos or Hispanics are booked into our criminal justice system, they're coded as white because our criminal justice system doesn't recognize their ethnicity as race, it recognizes just as an ethnicity. But our country is founded on being blacks at the bottom and whites at the top. And whoever provides economic advantage, because what, 1923, Syrians were considered white. And then it was repealed in 1924. If you are from Northern Africa and you come to the United States, you are considered white. Why? Because Jesus is believed to be from Northern Africa. So the advantage is given to, you know, for whiteness. So with all that spectrum, you have that color spectrum, but you have the bookends, white here and black here and Asian and Latin and D Dominican Republic, all that in between is a varying spectrum. Yeah, and I'll just dip in to say that um, since 2011, 2001 actually, there's a lot of indication that actually Arab Americans are, that, that the white power structure is actually trying to co-opt African Americans uh, as part of the, the patriot, patriotic white country somehow, whereas Arab, uh, Eastern Amer <clears throat> Arab Americans and people from the Middle East are, are seen as the permanent most dangerous enemy. Is this just a follow-up on that or? Okay. How about the fact that the largest minority in any community is the biggest threat to the majority? Um, what kind of threat do you have in mind? Uh, <laughs> assuming privilege, moving from the bottom. Of moving from, yeah, and it's sad, right, that white people would think that, that um, there has to be a group with privilege. So yeah, that, I think that's part of it. Rather than people all working together and, you know, hippie holding hand language. Thank you very much. I appreciate you.